David Douglas, the administrator of a Christian school, told the following story. He said, there was a knock at my office door, and when I opened the door, I was met by one of our lady teachers and a 17-year-old male student whom I will call Juan. The very firm voice of the lady teacher said, this young man refuses to do any work in my class and is totally defiant toward me. The hardened look on Juan's face was evidence that he was definitely a defiant student. I excused the teacher, told her I would take care of the problem. Juan was not a newcomer to my office. As a matter of fact, there were other lady teachers who had similar problems with him. He was really at the end of his rope. He and I both knew that. His anger and defiance was always directed toward lady teachers. The male teachers never seemed to have a problem with him. I made a phone call to our Spanish pastor at the church. I knew that he had been working with Juan as well. And within an hour, the Spanish pastor was in my office. Juan had a choice to make, immediately change his behavior or return to the public school system. For 25 minutes, the Spanish pastor counseled with Juan, and as he spoke with him, I listened, and it gradually became clear to me as they talked what his problem really was. When the Spanish pastor had finished speaking to Juan, there was a moment of silence, and then I asked Juan a key question in a very calm, deliberate voice. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said by, old, by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother Rekha shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say, Thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar. Now, whenever you see a therefore in the scripture, you want to stop and say, what is that therefore? What went before it? And remember, it is the discussion about anger that goes before verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come offer thy gift. I want to explain to you this morning what anger is and does, and tell you how to be delivered from anger. Would you notice first of all with me that anger deceives now, all sins carry within themselves, <coughs> excuse me, the seeds of deceitfulness, but this especially seems to be true of anger. The deceptiveness of anger is that the angry person feels justified about being angry. He feels like he has a cause for his anger. Sometimes people wouldn't even say, yes, I have a right to be angry. You hope people say that. The people of Jesus' day recognized and acknowledged that killing was wrong. In verse 21, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill, and so on. But Jesus took them further and pointed out that their anger was wrong as well. Now, we all know that anger leads to murder, and it is not just the murder that is sin. The anger is sin as well. The angry person, Jesus said, calls his brother Rekha, which means empty-headed one. People in our day will say things like, you idiot or you dummy. You have really done exactly what Jesus said when he said you call somebody Rekha or fool. In your heart, you have done away with this person. In your spirit, you either temporarily or permanently murder that person. You're saying, I don't need you in my life, you idiot. Get out of my life. Anger almost always communicates rejection. And that is the reason somebody has wisely said, read it with me out loud. Would you please, everybody? Speak when you're angry and you'll make the best speech you'll ever regret. So, 
How could we possibly think that anger like this could be justified? Because there are times when anger seems to be the only thing that will work to fix whatever it is we see that is broken. I have an article that tells how a baseball pitcher getting angry at his team's seven-game losing streak seemed to have had a positive effect on his team that led to victory in the next game. It was like, we need that anger. Yeah, give us some more of that stuff. That is the deceptiveness of anger. Anger sometimes seems to work. But it wasn't really anger that was needed at all. What was needed was some determination and intensity. Intensity is wonderful. We must be careful to not cross the line and let intensity become indignation. And I need to apologize right here. I see that we have switched computers and the fonts are not the same and so I'm not sure how it's going to look for the rest of this. We'll just do the best we can with it, all right? Um, <clears throat> it is all right to be high-spirited. It is not all right to be harsh. It is all right to be judicious. It is not all right to be judgmental. It is all right to be emphatic. It is not all right to be enraged. It is all right to be watchful. It is not all right to be wrathful. It is all right to be determined. It is not all right to be destructive. Anger is just plain wrong. One man's cause for his anger was this. Well, he said, he keeps the family in line. He said, I know it may not be a good way to raise kids, but it works. When I get mad, they quiet down and do what I tell them to do. And you know, my, that might actually work for a little while, but it is too direct a violation of Ephesians 4.31 to produce good fruit long range. Read that verse out loud with me, would you please? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Notice, let all wrath and anger be put away from you. It doesn't say keep some, get rid of some other. It says get rid of all of it. An angry man creates rebellion and discouragement in his wife, children, or workers that may eventually turn into bitterness. Anger is the thing that cuts the heartstrings tied between a parent and a child and makes children vulnerable to negative peer influences and worldly pressures. The most important thing that a parent can ever do as a parent is to build the proper relationship with his child. The proper relationship is that of building, turning your heart to your child and tying heartstrings with your child. Now what I've seen happening, we've been watching it happen now for many, many years, is that parents will get angry at the child. What they don't realize is that when they do that, they violate the key negative command found in both in Ephesians and in Philippians that says provoke not your child to provoke not your children to wrath or provoke not your children to anger lest they be discouraged. Well, there are many things that can provoke a child to anger or to wrath, but nothing provokes to wrath like wrath. Nothing provokes to anger like anger. And so you may get angry at your child. As you get angry at your child, your child gets angry back at you. And as the child gets more angry, then you get more angry and you say, you don't look at me like that, you boy. boy. You don't do that, Johnny. You don't dare. And so Johnny... Uh, internalizes his anger, which turns into bitterness, which explodes as outward rebellion about age 15 or 16 years of age. You need to understand, you can have your children in Christian school, you can put them in, um, uh, you can do homeschool, 
You can be in a church like this Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, come to all the revival meetings. You can have Bible reading and prayer in your home. You can hold hands as a family and pray at the table. And if you get angry at your child, you are probably going to have a rebellious teenager about age 15 or 16. That's all that it takes. It tear, it rips the heartstring between the, the parent and the child. It severs the relationship. And here's what I see, preacher. I see folks who about the time the child reaches 17 or 18, they realize they're losing their child to the world. And they're desperate about this and they say, I've got to do something about this. And so they try to put a stronger chain on the child. And they're going to chain this child in. No, you don't go there. No, you don't do that. No, you don't watch that, you know. And they go right down the line. All these things you can't do. And I'm not against you being against things that will damage your child. I'm just trying to show you what's happening. That's all. So this chain you're putting on your child will not work. There has never been forged a chain that was strong enough and powerful enough to hold a rebellious child at home. It won't do it. The child will break. You can have the heaviest chain imaginable. The child about age 18 or 19 is going to break that chain if they don't break it before that. The, the, the blessing is this, folks. If you tie what I call a golden heart string between your child and between your child's heart and your heart. There is nothing that will break that heart string. That heart string will stretch from one side of the United States to the other side of the United States. That heart string will stretch from, from you to wherever your child is going on Saturday night. Your child will be thinking everywhere he goes, if, if I do something wrong, that's going to displease God and it's going to displease my dad. And I can't stand the thought of coming back home and my dad being broken hearted because of something that I've done wrong. The golden heart string stretches all the way into eternity. I have a dad who's been in heaven now for 25 years this spring. Can I tell you something? There is still a golden heart string tied between my heart and my daddy's heart. There was something wonderful about our relationship, but anger severs that. Anger destroys that. Anger wipes that out, and that's all that it takes. Somebody has wisely said, read it with me, would you please? The greatest quality a husband and father can demonstrate is genuine love. And the most destructive attitude a father can have is anger. A father's anger is the strongest fortune imaginable to destroy the fellowship with his wife and to drive his children away from him. And a man only has to get angry once a month to keep his family in fear 24 hours a day all week long because they're always afraid that he will blow up. The angry person feels that he has a cause. <coughs> Excuse me. The angry person reads Matthew 5, 22, where it says, I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause uh, and shall be in danger of and so on. And the angry person reads that and says, but I have a cause. There is a cause for my anger. It might be interesting for you to trace the phrase without a cause throughout the Bible. It actually occurs eight times, six in the Old Testament, two in the New. The first is in 1 Samuel 19.5 where Jonathan said to his father, King Saul, Wherefore then wilt thou sin against innocent blood to slay David without a cause? Then five times in the book of Psalms, David said his enemies hated him without a cause. In John 15, 25, Jesus said, they hated me without a cause. Did you notice the meaning of the phrase without a cause? In all eight cases where it occurs in the Bible, it means 
there is no cause. There is no cause for anger. There is no justification, Father. There is no justifiable cause for your anger, Mother. There is no justifiable cause for your anger, Husband, Wife, Son, Daughter, Employer, Employee. You cannot righteously, biblically defend anger. Psalm 37, 8 says, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Notice what it does not say. It does not say cease from carnal anger and keep righteous anger. And the reason it doesn't say that is because God is the only one who can truly get righteously righteously angry. Four out of five, 80% of the occurrences of the word anger, angry, wrath, wrath, Fury, furious, and indignation. 80% of the occurrences of those in the Bible are God's wrath or anger. It is always righteous and always right. And yours and mine is always unrighteous and always unright. It cannot, you cannot make it right. If God were to hand you or me righteous indignation. By the way, those two words never occur together in the Bible. That is, the, uh, that is something man came up with. But it is uh, always in the Bible, it is great indignation or fiery indignation. And the great and fiery indignation of God is always right. And the great and fiery indignation of man was always wrong. So, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. If God handed you his anger, you would make it unrighteous anger just like that. You cannot handle anger. In fact, one of the reasons that anger is always wrong is because, and I'll deal with this probably uh, more later in the message or maybe tonight, the purpose of anger and wrath In Romans chapter 12, verse 19, I think I'll turn over there and show you that. You want to turn in your Bible? Let me show you this. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 tells you what the purpose of wrath is and tells you why God can use wrath and you and I cannot use wrath. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, notice it. Dearly beloved, avenge, I'm I'm adding this in, it's actually in another message on anger, but I'm throwing it in this one because it's such a key thought. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. Notice that. The purpose of wrath is vengeance. That's what it says. Now, God can righteously get angry and righteously carry out vengeance on somebody. God can take that even a step further than you and I can take it. Have you ever noticed that sometimes one of the, uh, one of the um, manifestations of vengeance is humiliation? God could righteously get angry, righteously carry out vengeance on Sodom and Gomorrah. God can righteously get angry and righteously strike Nebuchadnezzar the king with some kind of affliction that made him like a wild animal for seven long years. Now, when God did that, God not only carried out vengeance on Nebuchadnezzar, he humiliated Nebuchadnezzar. Watch it. God can righteously get angry, righteously carry out vengeance, righteously humiliate somebody. You and I cannot do any one of the three. We cannot righteously get angry, Now look, here's the reason. If you spank a child in anger, you actually accomplish nothing. Actually, you do accomplish something. You make the child worse. Whatever he has done wrong, he will be worse in the future. 
When you, when you spank a child in anger, you are not disciplining the child. You are not correcting him in love. You are carrying out vengeance on the child. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. That is not our place. Our place is in love to correct and discipline a child and turn him the right direction. That is our purpose. That is our place. That's what we have a responsibility before God to do. We do not have a right to carry out vengeance on a child. Now, I said, I'm not sure, preacher, I'm not sure whether God, and I'm not sure I'm ever going to figure this out. If you have any thoughts for me, I'd love to hear them. I'm not sure whether God deliberately tries to humiliate a man or if in carrying out vengeance, sometimes he does simply sometimes he does humiliate a man. I don't know which it is, but I know that God absolutely humiliated. Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest Gentile king in all of world history. He was the head of gold. And uh, when God struck him and turned him into something like a wild beast crawling around eating grass for seven years, I want to tell you, he not only carried out vengeance on that man, he humiliated that man. When God struck Pharaoh's army, God carried out vengeance. When, when God took uh, Pharaoh's firstborn son, then God took Pharaoh's army God carried out vengeance on Pharaoh and God humiliated Pharaoh at the very same time. Now, what do parents do sometimes? Parents get angry at their children. In that anger, anything you do from that point on that you are angry with your child will be vengeance and humiliation. They will look at their children and say, it, fathers are really bad to do this with their sons. So why, you, you are a sissy. What is the matter with you? You're humiliating your child. Son, you're acting like a baby. What is the matter with you? Quit acting like a baby. That's not the way to deal with the situation at all. Let's say he is acting like a baby. Then get down on his level. Look him in the eyes with eyes of love and compassion and say, son, your dad loves you and your behavior right now is not the kind of behavior that you need to have. All right? Here's the kind of behavior that you need to have. And because if you humiliate a child, then you will not help the child to get better. The child will resent. He will resent the wrath he will feel the vengeance. He will react to the humiliation and he will become worse in the long run instead of better. And it doesn't matter how much preaching and teaching you put him under. It doesn't how much, matter how much you love him. It doesn't matter how much the mother tries to, uh, tries to um, make up for this. There's no way you're going to make up for this. It is going to damage the child unless the child is able to somehow or other by the grace of God work through it and go on past it. You are going to damage the child. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. It doesn't work. I had been in, <coughs> excuse me, I had been in Oak Harbor, Washington, I had preached four days and given six key messages. And the last night we decided to have a, a question and answer session. And a man stood up, looked at me and said, Pastor Davis, I work hard all day. I come home tired and I find that the children have not done their jobs. I tell them and they just sit there. When I raise my voice and get angry, they start to move. How do I get them to obey without getting angry? Now, I'll tell you later what I said to him, but would you notice right there that that man felt like there was justification for his anger? He was saying there is a cause for this. It is the only thing that works. I've talked to other people who continually display anger or an angry spirit, but they 
deny it. I read about a man who would pound his fist on the table, turn red and scream, I'm not mad, I'm not mad, I'm not mad. But he was mad. And preacher, you know what the biggest problem is? The biggest problem in dealing with anger is getting people to admit they got the problem. I mean, it, it's, it's like it's, it's astounding to me how difficult it is to get people to admit they have the problem. I, I, I saw a situation a while back where I, as, as a pastor, I had to deal with somebody who had an anger problem. And I actually, I don't even like to do this, preacher. Sometimes we have to do this, but I don't know. I know you've you, you got a heart for people. You don't even like this. I don't like to keep records Detail records of things people do wrong. Don't you hate to do that? Sometimes you just almost have to. I had to walk into this person and say, look, you did this right here. Here's where you manifested anger here. You grabbed that child by the ear and swung him around by the ear. Here's another situation where you grabbed a child and slammed him up against the wall. Here's another situation where in front of a whole bunch of people, you screamed and embarrassed the child, and I went right down the line. I had about six or seven of those. I said, here, 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 here. Most all of it had been in the previous 12 months, and most all of it had been public displays of wrath or anger at the, around the church in some way. And the person, when I got done, looked at me and said, I don't know what your definition is of anger, but I don't have a problem with anger. And you can't help somebody like that. They've reached the point, what are you going to do? They absolutely deny it. And the problem with denial of anger or even justification of anger is that it renders you helplessly a slave in bondage to your sin. Then your sin not only leaves you in bondage, it affects all those around you as well. Those in your outer circles of acquaintances will probably see your problem, just love you anyway. Those in your inner circle of acquaintances may also love you and may love you deeply and intensely, but are probably going to be damaged by you. I would submit to you, the number one thing damaging spiritually our children in Bible-believing homes and churches is the anger of one or both parents. Anger also destroys the spirit of oneness between a husband and wife, and there's not hardly anything more important for a husband and wife than that. Parents think that their wrath is justified by their child's disobedience or rebellion. The truth is, in most cases, the disobedience and rebellion is caused by the anger. It escalates the anger until the parent's anger and the child's rebellion turn into a feeding frenzy of intensity back and forth, back and forth, building and encouraging in the wrong way. Proverbs twenty two twenty four 24 says, Make no friendship with an angry man. It means do not develop a close relationship with an angry person. Don't pasture, graze, or feed with him. And with a furious man, thou shalt not go. Why? Because you're going to learn his ways. Lest thou learn his ways and get a snare to thy soul. What happens? If you're continually spending lots of time with an angry person, you become like that person. You start walking the same road that he is walking on. I began with a story about a young man who was so angry at his lady teachers. This otherwise godly man just sat and listened. Finally, he looked at one and asked a key question. In a calm, deliberate voice, he said, One could I ask you, when you were young, did your father beat your mother? And Juan looked over at him, his expression startled, then he put his hands over his face and he burst into tears. Now what happened to that boy? 
He was a 17-year-old young man who probably did not even like his father. But he had walked the same path with an angry father until he became like him. The hostility and anger his father displayed toward his mother had become a part of him and he was now treating women like his father treated his mother. For many years now, we've been counseling with parents of rebellious teens, but seldom have we seen angry parents with rebellious youth who turned around their children unless and until, read it with me please, Parents should make it a bigger goal to conquer their own anger than to conquer their child's disobedience. It is actually, contrary to what most people think, it is actually a relatively easy thing to deal with teenage rebellion. The more difficult thing is to get parents to admit their anger problem and to deal with it. When you deal with a teenage rebel, they're usually 15, 16 years of age and they've only had this problem with rebellion for probably three or four years. It started back when they were, well, it could have started much earlier, but by age 12, I have a message on the table entitled What to Expect from a 12-Year-Old that shows the seven key character qualities that should be in the life of a child by the time he turns 12 years of age. If you have those, then the teen years are a breeze. Now, without those seven key character qualities in his life, then he begins to go downhill, especially if he has an angry, angry parent. And the angry parent has been angry for several years before this, and now he gets more angry as the child gets in his teen years, and it takes about three or four years to turn a child into a full-blown rebel who just defies his parents. But here's the thing. The parent has had an anger problem for probably 20 more, 20 years or longer. The anger is more a part of the life, the whole fabric of the parent's life than it is the child's life. Then the rebellion is the child's life. It's a relatively quick and easy process if you do exactly what you're supposed to do to get rid, to deal with the child's rebellion. It is a far greater challenge to deal with the parent's anger. It is a huge thing. Now this brings me to a key statement that summarizes the first point of this message. Read it with me, would you please, everybody? Anger is not caused by what is happening outside of you, <coughs> inside of you. Anger deceives concerning its justification and its presence. Then secondly, anger is described in the Bible in some unusual ways. There are at least five different illustrations God uses to describe anger in your Bible. The first is found in Proverbs 25, 28, and anger is described as a city without walls. Here is the verse. He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. So anger doesn't just destroy you. It primarily makes you weak and vulnerable so that you and those under your authority can be destroyed. Think of the Bible illustration of Jericho. The city of Jericho was an impregnable fortress. But when the Israelites marched around, blew the trumpets and shouted, and the walls fell down flat, suddenly no one, no thing in that city was safe. And he that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Angry person, no one and no thing under your authority in the home, the church, or the business is safe, including you yourself. Angry people are far more likely to have high blood pressure, heart attacks, strokes, and so on. Your anger damages you in other ways as well. I spoke in Springfield, Illinois at a state-sponsored drug rehab center. There were about 85 people there, all of them drug addicts 
who were trying to deal with their addiction. I asked the people in that room, we were jam-packed in this little room there that day, and I said, how many of you ever yielded to some addiction after getting angry and virtually every hand went up? Why? Because once anger is displayed, the walls are down, you are vulnerable and open. I talked to a mother who told me that she and her husband had already lost five of their six children. She told me without me even asking that it was because of their anger. Their oldest child, age 28, a daughter, had been granted custody by the courts of their youngest daughter, age 16, two years earlier because the state recognized what a big problem the parents had with anger. Now this older daughter was living in immorality with a guy and the mother wanted to go to the authorities and get the 16-year-old back for her own protection, a very wise thing to do. We talked for a little bit and I said, I think I need to ask you, ma'am, how are you doing with your anger? She said, oh, lots better. I said, ma'am, when was the last time you had any type of angry outburst at all? And she said, well, last Saturday. And I said, ma'am, I'm sorry, it's too late. You're done. God gave you two years to change and you did not change and the authorities are probably not going to give you your daughter back when those around you will testify that you still have a problem with anger. Now, do you see what anger did in that home? It took away all the defenses. Satan destroyed one after the other all six children and that is not an untypical story. It is very much a typical story in our day. Secondly, anger is like an unbearable load. Proverbs 27, 3 says, A stone is heavy and the sand weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than them both. The word heavy there means massive, burdensome, oppressive, can you imagine a young person carrying around a heavy rock all day long? When I gave this message at our church in Lincoln, Illinois, I actually brought several young people onto the platform with me. I think it was three or four. I had a teenager stand here. I had somebody who's about 10 or 12 stand here. I had like a five-year-old stand here. And I handed each of them a big rock something they could handle, something they could hold for a little while. After a while, I had to take them away because everybody was looking at the kids and feeling sorry for them. And I, I said, but do you understand that your child, if you have a problem with anger, your child everywhere he goes always is carrying a big load. He lays down to sleep at night and it lays on his chest. He gets up the next morning and he's carrying that heavy load around. And here it, he never gets to put it down. There have been times when I wish that I could have taken a picture of a child's face when his or her parent were angry and then have them come back later and let the parents study the picture of their child and look at the totally unbearable load they put on their child. My girls long ago forgave their daddy. But there are times I can still remember the look of fear on my girls' faces because I used to defend and justify my anger. Anger, somebody said, is one letter short of danger. It is also true, generally speaking, that younger men have more problems with anger than older men. You remember the four men who came to comfort Job after he lost everything? 
Elihu was the youngest of the four and waited to speak last. And three times in three verses, the Bible says that Elihu's wrath was kindled. He was angry at Job and all of the other friends. His anger was totally unjustified. And when I shared that with somebody, they gave me this observation. They said, you know, Brother Davis, have you noticed that anger continues till all the children leave home and then a fellow begins to settle down? Satan's goal in stirring the anger is to destroy the possibility of a godly seed. Thirdly, the Bible describes anger as a flood. The Bible says wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous and the Hebrew word means, <coughs> excuse me, like a downpour or a flood. A powerful flood has the capability of washing away homes, churches, business, and bridges. Do you realize the power of water? Do you realize the power of a flood? God used the picture of a flood and water to destroy the whole world at one time. Do you remember it's been about, what, four years ago now that there was a tsunami it's a massive wave created by an earthquake at sea. And there was a tsunami that hit the coast of Thailand and destroyed all kinds of property and killed thousands of people. There was a Mr. and Mrs. Neal from here in the United States who were vacationing on the coast of Thailand and were walking along the coast that Sunday morning, I believe it was, with their camera. They actually took these pictures of the tsunami. Don't miss this, folks. Don't miss this. They took these pictures of the tsunami right before it hit them and killed them. And their camera was found later, and the card was in the camera, and they got the pictures off the card. The first thing that happens with a tsunami is that water goes out and you see exposed areas of land and that's what you see there. The second thing that happens, you see lots of land in this picture, lots of exposed sand and so on and you look out there and you see this big wall of water that is headed straight toward these people. Now all the exposed land is gone and there is nothing there but a massive wall of water. Here is the wall of water with a person circled, six foot tall person standing. He has about two seconds left to live. And right there is where he was standing. The tsunami, the people taking the pictures have about one to two seconds left to live as well before this massive wall of water wipes them out. This is also a picture of the tsunami that hit the coast of Japan several months ago. Now, I want y'all to look at this picture on the screen in front of you, and let me tell you a story. Several years ago now, we had a man and his wife who were coming to our church, and they were having some marriage problems. I was counseling them on Wednesday nights before church. And we were actually seeing some headway. I was giving them about 20 minutes every Wednesday night before church, talking to them, counseling with them, and then sending them on their way and talking to them the next week. We'd been going for five or six weeks. This Wednesday night before church, I sat down, we started talking to them and they'd had a couple of little problems that week, no big deal. Right in the middle of that counseling session, that man blew up. He did exactly what the Bible warns you not to do. He was, by the way, he's one of the most likable men I've ever met. And, but he flipped and in the midst of his anger, he started doing what Jesus pictured. 
He was calling his wife Reka and fool. His words were harsh and bitter and hateful, and he cut her off. And he, in his heart, he murdered her. And in in less than in less than one minute of anger, he undid five weeks of counseling. In one minute of anger, his anger was a flood. It was a tsunami. It destroyed the counseling. It destroyed the relationship. And a few weeks later, they were divorced. The man, it's amazing how anger can be like a flood that just washes away a home. Anger is described forth as a poisonous snake. Proverbs 27, 4 says, Wrath is cruel. And one form of that Hebrew word cruel is used in Deuteronomy 32, 33 to refer to the cruel venom of asp. When King Saul got angry at David and tried to pin him to the wall with a javelin, that anger was like a deadly snake striking at its prey. I remember talking to a mother with a 19-year-old son and two daughters ages 15 and 12. The 15-year-old had run away from home three times in the same length of months. When I asked the mother if she had a problem with anger, she said, well, yes. I'm I'm facing a jail sentence right now for my anger. I kicked a policeman the last time we had a problem and needed the police around here. That's why somebody said, read it with me. Will you please, everybody? When a man gets mad, he goes mad. By the way, if you listen to my message, Freedom from the Spirit of Anger, I point out that the words anger, angry, wrath, wrath, fury, furious, and indignation are used uh, several hundred times in the Bible in relation to God. But there is a word that is never used in your Bible in relation to God because God never gets that way. It is always used in relation to man and that is the word mad. And the reason is God never gets mad. God never loses it. His anger is always controlled. It is always precise. It is always fine. But yours and mine often turns into madness. Now, the fifth picture of anger is to me the most picturesque of them all. The Bible picture of an angry person in Job 41 is that of a fire-breathing dragon. Remember that Proverbs 27, 4 says wrath is cruel and yet another form of that Hebrew word for cruel was used in Job 41, 10 to refer to the fierceness of Leviathan. Dr. Henry Morris said Leviathan was a real animal, presumably the largest and fiercest of all the aquatic dinosaurs probably capable of breathing out fire. Dinosaurs and men Definitely lived at the same time. We're in the state of Texas. If you want to see it, drive up to Glen Rose, Texas and look at the the prints of the the footprints and the dinosaur prints going right side by side. I've been there and uh, you'll see that they lived at the same time. Notice how God described Leviathan. Out of his mouth go burning lamps and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils goeth smoke as out of a seething pot or a cauldron. His breath kindleth coals and a flame goeth out of his mouth. You say, well, that's not possible. Well, let me give you a comparison here because we have a little creature alive in our day that has similar capabilities. Now, I'm going to pause right here because that little creature on the screen in front of you Every, everybody, especially our children and young people, ought to know the name of that little creature. The reason is this. This little creature single-handedly destroys the theory of evolution. You see, if you're going to believe in evolution, then every creature in existence has to fit into the evolution model. If you believe in creation 
then every creature in existence has to fit in the creation model. I am a creationist. Now, this little creature, the evolutionist professors dodge this little creature because there is no way that can explain how this little guy evolved. Now, I wonder if there's any children in here today who could lift your hand and tell me the name of that little creature. Any children here? What is that creature's name? The bombardier beetle. Everybody say it with me, please. The bombardier beetle. Say it again. The bombardier beetle. Everybody needs to remember this little creature. He is armed with a very impressive defense system. Whenever he is threatened by an enemy, he blasts irritating, odious gases at a temperature of 212 degrees Fahrenheit out two little tailpipes right out his little rear. <laughs> that blast goes right into the unfortunate face of the would-be aggressor who then decides that he doesn't particularly care for a meal of hot food as much as he thought he did. Now, I said that evolution cannot explain how he came into existence. Here's why. You see those two little sacks right there? Those two little sacks contain the two chemicals that he combines and they create that 212 degree temperature explosion. Now, he had to have both sacks at the same time. If he had evolved those two sacks, he would have blown himself up while he was evolving. Now, don't you know that the same God who made that little beetle would have no problem making a fire-breathing dragon and we are technically, biblically correct to compare an angry man to a fierce, fire-breathing dragon. You remember how Herod became exceeding wrath and killed all those babies? A pastor and his wife came to see me several years ago. His children were rebellious. His wife was very afraid of her husband. She said, Pastor Davis, if my husband cannot control, him, control the situation, he loses control of himself. I asked her for an illustration and she said, I could give you a lot of them, but I'll give you the worst one. I had a pet dog. I loved her and the children loved her. She got out in the yard one day and killed one of our chickens and my husband got angry. Then she did it again. He got more angry and threatened to kill her. And I told, her, I told him, honey, you can't do that. She's like a family member. The dog slipped out of the house and killed the third chicken. And this lady sitting in my office was weeping and visibly shaking as she looked at me and she relived the event. She said, I could not stop my husband. I was crying and begging and the children were crying and pleading. And he walked out in a rage, took the shotgun and boom, blew away the family pet right in front of everybody. That man kept his chickens and lost his wife. Not a very good trade if you ask me. The last time I talked to the family, two of the three children would not have anything to do with the father and the wife and daughter had orders of protection from the government against dad even coming around. He was a fire-breathing dragon and yet, preacher, I talked to the man I believe it was three different occasions I was never able to convince him he had a problem with anger. Could not see it or refused to see it. Y'all remember I told you earlier about a man in the state of Washington who asked that key question. He said, I come home tired and the kids haven't done their jobs. I tell them to do them and they sit there. When I raise my voice and get angry, they move. How do I get them to obey without getting angry? Do y'all mind if I borrow somebody here for a minute? 
Can I borrow your son for a second? What's his name? David. Look like a fine young man here. Come down here, David. Let me show you what I'm talking about, all right? Okay. David, we're going to have you just sit right here for a second. You sit right there for a second, all right? Now, I said to him, sir, the children are behaving this way because that's the way you have trained them to obey. Everybody trains their children. Some people train them the right way. Some people train them the wrong way. I said, now look, here's what your, your children know that when you come home and say, hey kids, the, the chores aren't done around here. They know it's not time to move. You've trained them that way. Hey, David, why aren't, the, why aren't the chores done yet, man? Huh? Huh? Why aren't the chores done? He's not moving yet. You've trained him to not move yet. That's, he knows. He knows that until you really get intensely angry, David, man, you don't go do them chart. You know that trash you're supposed to take out, boy. If you don't go do that right now, boy, I'm going to have your head. Now he knows he's got to move. <laughs> Folks do the same thing when they wake their children up in the morning. They start the day by screaming at the children. Wrong thing to do. <clears throat> the Bible says, Enter into God's presence with thanksgiving and praise and joy. Now, what happened when you came in here today? Did you notice what happened? We started out with trumpet blast. I love that pocket horn. I've played the trumpet for years, and I've never seen one of those things. Man. And uh, we started out with trumpet blast praising God and people standing up praising God and we entered into God's presence with praise and with, with thanks and it set the stage for the whole day. What if you'd have walked in here and the first thing happened was Brother Thompson walked up behind the pulpit and said some of you look sort of scummy today. Some of you look like you slept in. Some of you are late. I saw you. I, I told you I'm starting church right at 10 o'clock on a dot and some of you were three minutes late. I'm telling you, don't you ever do that again. You'd have said, I don't think I want to come back there. <laughs> no. He got up and he said, man, we're so glad to see you. Now, apply this to your home, would you please? How do you start the day at your house? Do you start the day at your house by saying, Johnny, the alarm clock went off five minutes ago and you're still, David, why aren't you up, buddy? He's a good guy, isn't he? And why aren't you up? And you scream again, and he reaches over, and he picks up a shoe right next, and he, he drops it like this so that you think he just put a foot over the bed, and he turns back over and goes back to sleep because you have trained him that the intensity of the screams are not loud enough yet. Now, why don't you do this instead? He's laying there asleep. Lay down, David. He's laying there asleep, and you're trying to get him up, and you come in, you say, David, how you doing, man? Hey, man, it's a beautiful day. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Oh, man, we're going to have a great day today. Man, what a wonderful day this is going to be. Now, let's say, comes home. I told this guy, I said, the, the biggest difficulty is not retraining the children. They'll retrain easy. The biggest difficulty is retraining yourself. I said, you've been this way all these years. I said, now, when the children... Sit back down, David, would you please? What are you doing up anyway? <laughs> um, I said, now, when you come home and the kids are sitting there, play a video game, all right? Play a video game. Okay, all right. And they're ignoring you. And you've asked them to do the job. And they're not doing the job. And you say, you're supposed to, okay. It's the only chance you get to do that today. Stay with it, will you? <laughs> I said, 
Don't scream at a child that's making the situation worse. You walk over. First of all, <laughs> he's wondering what I'm going to do. Isn't he? First of all, you walk over and you look him in the eyes. <laughs> and you smile. The eyes are the windows to the soul. If you're not communicating eye to eye, you're not communicating at all. And your eyes say, I love you. The eyes say, David is a great guy, and I appreciate him helping me with this. And you look at him right in the eye, and you say, watch his eyes. <laughs> I'm having fun, preacher. You look him right in the eyes and you say, David, I think I told you to take out the trash. Did I, son? And I need you to go take out the trash right now. I said, he'll probably get up and go do it. But if he doesn't, don't get upset. Don't scream. Don't hit. Don't spank. Just, all right, David, you know what, buddy? Dad has not properly trained you to do your job. So come on, come on, come on, come on. Let's go do it together. And we go do it together. By the way, the, the best way to tie heartstrings with a child is by working with your child. And don't ever forget, guys, when you're working with your child, the most important thing is not getting the sticks picked up in the yard the most important thing is teaching David how to pick up the sticks. And don't scream at him when he doesn't get it right the first time. You just keep trying over and over again. He will eventually get it right. Give this boy a big hand. Sit right there. I might need you again. <coughs> now, so the fellow had to train himself. Somebody came up and somebody else spoke up in that meeting and they said, where does spanking come in? And I said, when a child has been trained and deliberate and learned to do right and deliberately disobeys, then you calmly, firmly spank for disobedience. And if you get angry when you spank a child, you will damage the child worse. Now, third here, uh, I'm, the preacher told me to go as long as I wanted to and Man, I'm usually totally done with this sermon by now, so let me move a little faster here. Thirdly, anger discovered. Would you notice that anger comes from pride? Remember what I said earlier? Anger, read it with me, please. Anger is not caused by what is happening outside of you. It is caused by what is happening inside of you. And there will always be things that can make us angry if anger is inside of us. A teacher was helping one of her kindergarten students put on his boots. He asked for help and she could see why. With her pulling, him pushing, the boots still didn't want to go on and she'd really worked up a sweat. She almost whimpered when the little boy said, Teacher, they're on the wrong feet. She looked sure enough they were. It wasn't any easier pulling the boots off than it was putting them on. She managed to keep her cool as together they worked to get the boots back on, this time on the right feet, and he announced, Teacher, these aren't my boots. <laughs> well, once again, she struggled to help him pull those off. He then said, They're my brother's boots. My mom made me wear them today. <laughs> she mustered up the grace to wrestle the boots on his feet again. She said, Now, where are your mittens? And he said, I stuffed them in the toes of my boots. There's always something to get angry about if anger is inside of you. Anger comes from pride. It is pride that causes us to talk down to our wives or our children. The Bible refers to proud wrath. The story of the unmerciful servant, that is a picture of that. And one of the first steps to conquer anger is by taking personal responsibility by humility. Now, secondly, anger comes from tensions created by unresolved guilt. In Genesis 4, Cain became so angry with his brother Abel that he rose up against him and slew him. 
Why was Cain angry? Because he had disobeyed God earlier and never made it right. This is very important right here for somebody. Abel offered a blood sacrifice. A picture of the blood of Jesus is the only way our sins could be washed away. And Cain offered the fruit of the ground, a picture of man's good works, which have never been acceptable before God for salvation. Cain was wrong, but he didn't want to humble himself and make it right. And the tension from the guilt produced anger that resulted in the murder of his brother. And probably the clearest illustration of this was King David getting angry after he had actually caused this man to be put to death. And I'm skipping over that. And um, now anger deceives, anger comes from pride, comes from tensions created by unresolved guilt. How are you going to defeat anger? Number one, quit justifying your anger. Quit defending your anger. And then... Uh, number two, accept personal responsibility for your anger. If you're lost, get saved. And remember that the source of anger is inside you, not outside of you. It's amazing to me how much time a person can spend fighting the consequences of his anger, and that's what I'll be talking about tonight. Third, confess pride by humbling yourself before God and others and asking for help. And then deal with any unresolved guilt from the past. Don't sweep it under the rug. Number five, forgive others who do you wrong and leave vengeance to God. Number six, seek to, be, seek to become meek and gentle like Jesus. Jesus is never called the angry Christ. Only one time in all the Gospels does it say he got angry and the same Greek word is used in Mark chapter 3 verse 5 is not used for any other human being in the New Testament again. But it does show up in Ephesians 4.31 and the Bible is telling you and me and I don't understand it but it's telling you and me that Jesus could handle anger. You and I cannot. We better leave it alone. By the way, in the service tonight, I will answer the question about Ephesians 4.26 that says, be ye angry and sin not. So I hope you'll be here. I will answer that one at that time. And then number seven, think of the blessings that will be yours when you cease to be an angry man or an angry woman. A Christian lady was really concerned about her lost husband wanting him to be saved. And one day, <coughs> excuse me, her, her pastor spoke to her husband about his lost soul. And the pastor was shocked when the man said, Sir, I'm not particularly against Christianity, but if being a Christian is going to make me an angry person like my wife, I really don't want any part of it. The pastor went to the wife and told her what her husband had said. She didn't realize how bad her, her anger was. An amazing thing happened. She did not become defensive. She knelt in prayer and asked God to forgive her and began to watch daily for an opportunity to demonstrate change. And a few days later, the husband was out fishing, came into the house with his rod over his shoulder, accidentally hit a costly lamp that went crashing to the floor. He immediately put his hands over his ears, waiting for the next crash of his wife's anger. It never came. He looked up and he saw his wife smiling and she said, Don't worry about it, darling. Accidents happen in the best of families. He said, You mean you're not going to get angry like you usually do? She said, No, honey, that's a thing of the past. I'm sorry I've been that way, but God is helping me get control. And a few weeks later, that husband trusted Jesus as his Savior. And the wife's testimony was strengthened by her anger being controlled by the Spirit of God. And I wonder what relationships anger is destroying in your life. And I wonder what God will do in your life when you finally deal with anger, the destroyer.